Uh, thank you, James, for the introduction. And um, I have to say, I really love being at meetings where it's uh, 9.36 in the morning and the first order of business is what pub you're going to go to at the end of the day. So this tells me that you've had a successful week. So, um, so thank you all for getting up bright and early on the morning after the night before um, on the last day of the summer school. And um, I'd like to thank James for the invitation. Um, and I think it's uh, becoming quite obvious to the community in digital humanities that the summer school is really becoming a do-not-miss part of the digital humanities calendar, which I think this is an important reflection on the, uh, the significant activity that's going on in digital humanities at Oxford. Um, and uh, as James said, um, my, actually my first job in digital humanities was just down the road in what used to be called the Oxford University Computing Services on Banbury Road, um, where in 1993 I joined the Computers in Teaching Initiative um, and they had a Centre for Textual Studies. Um, this centre was funded by the Higher Education Funding Councils um, to help integrate IT in teaching in higher education, notably by encouraging update and evaluating existing software and courseware uh, for teaching literary studies in higher education. Well, this software and courseware at that time was a veritable grab bag of computer-based learning tools, reference materials developed by publishers, um, including, I have to say, the extremely lush Chadwick Healy English Poetry Database, which retailed for £50,000, um, and lots of software for very specific functions like concordancing or doing keyword searching of corpora. And I have to say, a lot of this software was actually programmed by humanities academics in their basements. Um, and this material came in a big variety of formats, CD-ROMs, software that ran on mainframes, um, under DOS, on floppy disks, and lots and lots and lots of hypertext. Um, we wrote very detailed reviews of all this courseware that we posted to academic departments um, around the UK. And um, we also had a roadshow uh, dissemination activity that involved taking all this material and software uh, to demonstrate at literature departments around the UK. And as the IT budget of uh, humanities departments at that time didn't really stretch to things like cutting-edge hardware, uh, like um, computer hard drives with CD-ROM drives, um, and laptops of the time resembled World War I field telephones, um, our roadshow model was to drive around the UK with a boot full of hard drives and these giant computer monitors um, that we, we then set up for our demonstrations. And I think the lowest point was a dark January night outside Senate House in London when the inevitable happened and one of those giant monitors tumbled down a small flight of concrete steps. Shortly after that, the World Wide Web was invented and our dissemination model was mercifully redundant. And interestingly, I mention all this not just because I'm having a nostalgic moment, but um, the CTI initiative and its successor organisation, the Teaching and Learning Technology Project, or TLTP, grew out of a government view 
the last time this lot were in power, um, that computer-based learning was a, a highly effective way to decrease contact hours between academics and students and thus save money. And, of course, such a thing would be unthinkable in these more enlightened times. Um, Because one of the good things that came out of initiatives like the CTI and TLTP projects was the understanding that computer-assisted learning in the humanities had its place, but as part of a combination of teaching methods um, that drew on research excellence and the availability of a wealth of supporting resources, both digital and analogue, and most importantly of all, the critical framework to understand their use in the representation, analysis and dissemination of humanities materials. Um, And this was a model that presupposed that teaching and research were inexorably linked and that digital tools that we had were just part of a wider infrastructure. Um, And I think this this model is still very resonant today, um, and it was resonant when Joseph Rabin wrote in the first bulletin of the Association for Literary and Linguistic Computing, which is now the Journal of Literary and Linguistic Computing, A concern for the immediate future is computer-assisted instruction. The processes of learning are as complex as those of communication. If humanists do not concern concern themselves with directing the future of computer-assisted instruction, they'll have themselves to blame when only those factual aspects of the subject which most readily lend themselves to objective presentation drive out the intangible, the nuanced in our approach to humanistic learning. And he wrote that in 1973. So, um, but looking at these sort of ghosts of digital humanities past, even if it's the only recent past, is a very interesting mechanism, a framework for understanding our current use of digital collections um, and see how they're set in this digital research infrastructure as part of that research life cycle that we were investigating way back when. So um, the emphasis on the development of teaching and learning resources um, is also relevant to some of the things I want to talk about today, about the creation and use of digital collections in the humanities. Um, Because this emphasis on the development of resources through top-down initiatives like TLTP was one of the drivers of the development of the digital content for the humanities that we're now familiar with. Um, TLTP commissioned lots of courseware um, covering very diverse topics, including large numbers of images, um, primary and secondary texts and databases. And all of this courseware and the associated reference material needed humanities content, text, image and audio that had to be digitised in order to populate this courseware. And at the same time, embryonic research resources were being created. Um, The database of Irish historical statistics, which there's an extract from at the bottom of the slide there, um, was based at Queen's University, Belfast, and it set out to develop machine-readable files of all recurrent census statistics from the printed Irish census reports uh, from 1821 to 1911. And this involved manually keying the statistics into a basic data entry screen using double keying. Um, and then further funding followed uh, to complete the task 
but the technology had moved on. So that second phase used OCR recognition software to create the digital data. Um, and the completed data set had more than 30 million data values. So you can imagine the level of manual intervention that was required to get that text, uh, that corpus complete. The next major government initiative to, um, to make digital, sorry, the next major government initiative was based around that World Wide Web that uh, served us so well in the CTI Centre, um, was to make content available on the web for the public to access through research council funding. Um, in the UK, organisations like ESRC and in the US, the NEH and the Library of Congress who funded digitisation projects that often had t teaching projects developed around them, uh, like the Valley of the Shadow, had a long tradition of funding the computerisation of research material. But what was new was something called the Resource Enhancement Scheme from the Arts and Humanities Research Board, which later became the Arts and Humanities Research Council. And from 2000 to 2006, they funded 173 projects 150 of which were resources with a digital output. And I've done some analysis of the use of these resources, um, partly through my previous job when I worked at King's College. And this um, interpretation showed that a vast majority of these resources were of direct interest to a relatively limited group of scholars. In and this is not surprising, um, because in general terms, most humanists are chronologically focused, spatially specific, and not interdisciplinary in focus. So the project-based funding that they achieve enables them to work on problem-focused methods. And this approach invariably extends that existing paradigm to new resources, rather than revisiting or addressing the paradigm. There was no sense, really, in these projects of common endeavour, of linking resources. There was no strategic thinking to develop a kind of humanities canon of digital resources. And again, to this degree, it's understandable. Very few people involved in the creation of these resources would have had any kind of formal training in digital humanities resource creation, let alone the use of the resources. They'd have faced fast-changing technological developments, a revolution in what the technology could enable and the need to create new research agendas reflecting this technology had not yet emerged. So much work in creating the digital resources was very much grounded in the methodologies of the past, which was resulted in the kind of e-content that we saw, the bespoke e-content. It was very spe specific in focus and tended to be maintained in silos, maintained separately from other resources. Again, a random examination of some of the projects I've looked at for the, uh, funded through the Re Resource Enhancement Scheme makes this point. A surprising number of projects don't contain digital resources at all, but in fact they contain some catalogue to analogue content. For example, the Rural History Data Centre Library cataloguing project assimilating the MAF library and developing a web-based thematic catalogue, the music of Benjamin Britten. Great projects, but they just take you to printed resources. Others funded by the AHRC formed very highly focused digital collections, such as the Book of Curiosities, an early 11th century Arabic cosmography, a project to digitise the archive of the independent local radio programme sharing scheme and others of that nature. 
Other projects addressed a broader audience, but to a very limited extent. Um, one of the examples of that is this project um, that I was tangentially involved with at King's from Partition to Direct Rule, 50 Years of Northern Ireland Parliamentary Papers Online. Um, it's a very large corpus of material, it's about 90,000 pages of digital text of the Hansards of the Northern Irish Parliament, um, but it's got a very limited audience, even though it's a large resource. And again, what's very striking is how few of these early projects contribute to elements which could conceivably form the content for an integrated humanities research infrastructure. Resources which provide a broad context to specific collections, resources which relate to the whole of a country, resources which really form the baseline for research. To be fair to the AHRC, they do include projects like an electronic edition of the Doomsday Book, and which is a key point of reference for scholars of medieval England, or the similar, uh, similarly in importance, the Henry III Fine Rolls project. Again, strikingly, there was almost no awards to develop methodologies to use e-content, either in terms of resource discovery, management, information retrieval, or help helping address research debates through vastly enhanced access to content. One award made possible in one award makes possible in the digital <coughs> world something impossible in the analog, um, bringing disparate collections together. And um, I have to say, in the cohort of resource enhancement project, the reuniting of Osset Mandelstrom's texts and archives in digital form is a standout project um, because it really was concerned with linking disparate resources. Similarly, web publication of the metadata from the Perdita project. Um, was concerned with making metadata available across a collection. And it's interesting because these are somewhat niche topics, but they took a very broad approach, which really did stand out. Now, of course, this is all hindsight, um, and we can see with hindsight that this sort of initiative is taking full advantage of the opportunities of digital reproduction, and it therefore does stand in contrast to projects that result in the creation of individual collections of highly specific content with a limited number of users. There are, of course, exceptions. Some projects with a very niche audience thrive. Some projects that appeal to a very small cohort of people who are studying or teaching that topic are ideally suited to that audience. Um, and they're much used in teaching and research, and they can be repurposed in new ways to support innovative scholarship. But invariably, the lack of use that we found with the AHRC resource enhancement projects leads to really poor odds for the sustainability of these collections. And I have to say that many of them are currently residing in the 404 not found file, um, which is really unsurprising, um, not just because of the lack of use, um, but when resources that tend to reside on university servers with ageing interfaces, delivering material only to researchers who are sufficiently motivated to interact with them, the inability of the funders to develop sustainability models which oblige content to remain available for more than a few years means that a lot of this material has just disappeared completely. University academic departments um, are not best placed to host e-content and they lack motivation if the user bases are low. The lack of connectivity between resources means that potential users whose research might conceivably draw on digital content but is no degree entirely based on it 
are unlikely to find the content due to the metadata problem. Too few projects knew how to create metadata robust enough to support widest information discovery. So it's just a vicious circle that develops. Potential users fail to locate resources because content's difficult to find. It's therefore very rarely used and therefore very rarely cited. Because citations are few, content is even less likely to be discovered. User numbers stagnate. Um, and a lack of users and citations makes the improvement of a resource less likely, and eventually we just can't find the content anymore. In 2004, the research councils were joined um, in developing digital content by the Joint Information Systems Committee, or JISC, through its ongoing, I hope, content and digitization program. The program aimed to build a critical mass of content to help meet teaching needs, to provide better access, and help preserve difficult-to-access content often held by special collections in university libraries. And the JISC initiative built on international models funded by the likes of the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation to digitise library and special collections by content and collection rather than areas of interest and began to reflect a much more strategic approach to digitisation. One of the early findings of initiatives like the JISCI Content Programme and the Mellon Foundation's projects was that digital collections have had a, no digital collections have an, have had a notable impact where they've been used to make research faster and easier. Um, nowhere is this more true or the impact more significant than, that relating, to than relating to collections of electronic journals. A recent report commissioned by the Research Information Network Reinventing Research, Information Practices in the Humanities, noticed that scholars surveyed for the report all access journals through their library's database, most frequently mentioning JSTOR. JSTOR is just universally accepted as a key source for researchers. And similar projects have emerged, emerged featuring subject-specific journals. One example that I've got showing you here, um, which if you haven't looked at, please do, it's great, is Welsh Journals Online, um, which involved the digitisation and online delivery of leading Welsh journals in Welsh and English. Um, this project was based at the National Library of Wales and funded by JISC and the Welsh Government and launched in 2009 as a free online searchable resource with access to 19th, 20th and 21st century Welsh and Wales-related journals and periodicals. And these journals and periodicals, again, it's a reunification project. They're held at the National Library of Wales and also partner institutions. So they're brought together in one place for the first time. They cover a really wide range of subject areas, including humanities, social science, science, uh, technology, and climate. Um, the interface is very simple, allowing the user to browse and conduct keyword searches on about 400,000 pages of text in both languages. I did a recent weblog analysis of the resource, and it showed really quite healthy user statistics, which was encouraging. Um, but most users, when you looked at what they were actually doing with the resource, they came to the resource to find a journal and read a journal. That was what they did each visit, which again implies that people are just using this for very traditional scholarship. This is no different to what they would really do with an analogue journal collection. This sort of digital resource makes access, browsing and searching easier and has supplanted print as the first point of contact for scholars, but it's not a transformation of scholarly practice. 
And again, even successful projects like this are effectively silos. People work through them in a very linear fashion. They're supporting old research done digitally, more effective, more efficient, but not enabling new ways of working across content and collections. At the National Library of Wales, Welsh Journals Online was our first exercise in mass digitisation, and it informed subsequent thinking in the library about developing and building a digitisation programme to increase and enhance access to the collections of Wales. The initial driver for this was to um, increase usage of the library's collection by its geographically, culturally and linguistically very diverse user base. The scope of digitisation has included all the types of content held in the library. Following the journals project, the library began a more ambitious project, Welsh Newspapers Online, which ultimately will digitise over 2 million pages of 19th century Welsh newspapers, again in Welsh and English. The library's digitised highlights from its manuscript collections and made available 180,000 page images of Welsh wills. We've also digitised paintings, photographs and audiovisual materials and made them available. Just to step back a little bit, I think it's very important to see this development of digital collections in Wales against the background of devolved government, which since 1999 has sought to actively support the development of digital and other technologies in order to promote specific government policies intended to create a shared sense of Welsh identity, culture and nationhood. The Welsh, the Welsh government's initiative Digital Wales integrates content, creativity and technology with an underlying drive towards the delivery of public services that are digital by default as a means of integrating services and people. And to support this agenda, in 2010, the Welsh Government launched Delivering Digital Inclusion, a strategic framework for Wales, um, which is slightly different from its counterparts in other UK areas because it supports uptake of internet-based services, you know, paying your council tax online, but it also supports the uptake of digital resources and digital content. Um, Hugh Mackay at the Open Universities described this as an attempt to connect communities and make available the culture of Wales. The Assembly is grasping the potential of the internet to, internet to facilitate some sort of public sphere in Wales, following the model developed by Habermas around the 18th century coffee houses of European capital cities. Significantly, the library also took a very early decision to use some of its core funding from the Welsh Government for digitisation initiatives, um, which has enabled the library to build internal expertise in the entire digital workflow and to have the equipment to do all our digitisation in-house. So we've got expertise in all aspects of digital capture, management and preservation. And this approach has now placed digitisation and the need to sustain digital resources as absolutely central to our institutional mission, which has an impact on several of its institutional objectives. The most obvious is access. We offer broader access to our global audience. Now, this is especially relevant considering the geographic location of the library, which, as you know, is about 10 hours by train from here. Um, and it's a beautiful building, though. It's lovely once you get there. Um, but equally significant is enhanced access by making collections searchable, findable, and linked to related materials in a variety of formats. 
family and local historians can make reuse of the name-rich and historic archives that are now online, and researchers from all disciplines use the online photographic collections. And this access is generating increasing demand for more digital content to be created, from manuscripts to tithe maps, from printed materials to ethnographic recordings. Digitization also supports the library's objective of preservation by providing digital surrogates of rare and fragile materials, including manuscripts. And there's an example there of a detail from one of our manuscripts. Expertise in managing the entire digital life cycle has also enabled the library to develop a better understanding of its collection of born digital materials. A lot of the personal and artistic and literary archives the library acquires now um, consist of things like laptops and obsolete computer disks and historic software. Um, Digital collections development also supports collections enhancement, again enabling the reunification of collections across organisation, hence the importance of our collaboration with libraries, archives and museums across Wales and beyond, and lots and lots of community engagement. Our digital collections are a really good means of connecting with users who are far from us and building communities, physical communities too, especially family and local historians um, that are so crucial to the construction of public histories. Digitization is also creating content that can transform scholarship across the disciplines through the use of digital tools and methods for the analysis and reuse of this content in research and education. Our recently launched project, Welsh Newspapers Online, Uh, exemplifies this approach. Again, it's a mass digital archive, it complements existing collections, and it's greatly improved the user experience. And most importantly, it's free. Underpinning all National Library of Wales digitisation is the underlying principle of freely available public digital collections, in keeping with the overall goal of free library provision. This programme of digitisation and developing information online in the context of a national drive for digital literacy engagement can really be seen as part of the development of delivering core library services that really are digital by default. So the development of digital content at the National Library of Wales has, at a certain level, been a success story. We've digitised lots of our collections. We've digitised those of other organisations with content that enhances ours. We put it online, we move on, and we start the next cycle, which in many cases, well, most cases, involves writing of a grant application to get more funding to keep the digitisation beast satisfied. If the digitisation beast were to be found in a medieval vestry, it would certainly have two heads. (coughs) One would represent the users, the community who respond to the launch of every new digitisation project with a cry, not for more functionality, a nicer interface, better social media engagement. No, what do they want? They want more content. A million pages? We want two million. Two million? We want three. We want all the paintings, not just some of them. In 2001, I led a project funded by JISC to research the use of the Stormont Parliamentary Papers seven years after the project was launched. What did the users want? More content. The House of Commons Papers? We want the Senate. The committee reports, acts, bills, more stuff. 
The other head in the digitization of this digitization beast is the process itself, which has equipment that shouldn't go out of use. Staff will be lost to other jobs if we don't have more content to digitize. The flow of content towards that eases towards the end of a project, and you anxiously approach the digitization suite with the last small box of materials to be digitized, a few pamphlets and random photos, and you think, well, that will keep it going for a couple of weeks. And by the time you get back to your office, there's a message on your computer saying, we're finished, bring more stuff. And the process goes on and on. So the cycle begins again, and we move on to the next project. A grant application is written, and funding is obtained. There's temporary rejoicing. Then the euphoria wears off, and you have to do the project. In this case, the current project is the Welsh experience of World War I, which has been funded by GIST to conduct mass digitisation of archives, manuscripts, photographs, artworks and oral histories held by the National Library of Wales and our partner collections all around Wales. Um, The project content includes 190,000 pages of archival materials, photographs, manuscripts, artworks and newspapers, 30 hours of audio and about 12 hours of AV material and about 30% of it is in the medium of Welsh. These source materials are very presently fragmented and frequently inaccessible or even impossible to access, but when we put them together, they collectively form a unique resource of vital interest to researchers, students and the public in Wales and beyond. The material that we're digitising relates to all aspects of the Welsh experience of the First World War, and it reveals lots and lots of hidden histories, so again, that community engagement is so important. The project will be launched in November of this year, and then we'll have to feed the beast again. I'll have to come up with something else for it. Um, Partly because the digitisation programme is so embedded in the organisation of the National Library, and partly because the Library's got a keen sense of its responsibility to create this digital public sphere, the Library established a research programme in digital collections in 2011. And this was set up with the establishment of my post, and we've now got two staff Um, a number of postgraduate students and a range of projects in collaboration with partner organisations around the world. Now, part of the impetus for establishing this project, this programme, um, is related to the digitisation beast and the the need for more stuff. Um, It was a wish to, in this drive to feed the digitisation machine, to avoid creating projects that wouldn't have impact or use. But interestingly, they saw the question of impact and use of digital projects not as a digital curation issue, not something to do with metadata or interface or platforms, but something that really needed to be investigated from the other end of the digital life cycle by looking at the use and users of digital content. The research focus of the programme has two thematic aspects that are interrelated. The first is developing an understanding of the users of our existing digital content and then using this knowledge to identify ways that the content can be enhanced and made more valuable for use in research or teaching and community engagement, building projects that develop new digital... And then the second (coughs) is building projects that develop new digital content that addresses specific research or education needs in partnership with academics and other stakeholders. This two-pronged approach addresses all aspects of digital research in the arts and humanities, 
taking advantage of the convergent practices embedded in the digital humanities to add impact and value to the digital collections and increase their use. Or, as I like to categorise it, what do we do with all the digital stuff? And the conclusions that I've reached are that there's six things we need to do with digital stuff in order to ensure it's part of a transformation, transformative digital research infrastructure and not just digital photocopying. We need to use it, share it, engage with it, enrich it, sustain it, and above all, we need to be an advocate for it. Most important of these is using digital content, and I, I really hope that this is what you've been learning to do this week. Using digital content to transform scholarship is the absolute foundation of the digital humanities and the point of so many digitization initiatives. And there's, it's, there's a clear formula for this. The first is bringing together digital content, those collections that have been developed so lovingly, so expensively by memory institutions and universities over the years. Whether we're using specific resources aimed at specific people, data sets so highly specialised they have an audience of one, or using reference resources like online journals, or working our way through the complete digital record of a country like Wales, digital content's the core of this work. And in order for digital content to be useful, it must be of the highest quality, digitised to the highest standard, described using the most detailed metadata affordable, and presented in ways that enable its use by audiences for a variety of purpose, much purposes, many of which will be unforeseen when the content's created. And dare I say, in order for digital data to truly serve research, and you can tweak this, it must be free. The second is understanding the research methods that can be enabled in the digital sphere, the scholarly primitives that enable the researcher to gain new knowledge, discovering, annotating, comparing, referring, sampling, illustrating and representing digital content. These methods have to be described precisely in order to be understood and in order to be classified and fit within an agreed taxonomy, and this will make them replicable and rigorous. The third is the tools, the software to gather, analyse and process data that enables the testing of hypotheses and the interrogation of data and the representation and publishing of that data. Putting these aspects together affects digital transformation across the disciplines, enabling existing, i.e. analogue research processes to be conducted better or faster, and most significantly of all, enabling researchers to ask and answer completely new research questions. This sort of work adds value to digital collections, but also makes them more likely to be sustained over the long term. And I think what's so really exciting about this digital research space is that it's really an extension of the digital public sphere. It involves extended communities of practice and so many stakeholder groups, including research, uh, uh, stakeholder groups who include um, researchers across the arts and humanities, those in scientific disciplines, computer scientists, librarians, archivists, members of the public, family historians, cultural heritage staff, funders, technical experts, etc. The projects where new, in emerging projects where new methods are being explored, the most innovative work, work on things like deep mapping, which has been done at the Polis Project at Indiana University, or the UCLA projects in virtual environments, they're at the intersection of many disciplines, and that's why they're so interesting. 
A key group in this is digital humanities PhD students, and uh, three of our students have a focus on digital collections of Wales um, in art history, music, and our wills online, and they're applying digital humanities research methods to those collections. The other thing we need to do is share it. Um, whatever the issues are that lock our digital content in silos and preventing its use, the easiest way to overcome them is to share data with the widest possible audience through harvesting and aggregation. Use of a APIs mean that NLW content is shared with a number of partner aggregator organisations, um, making access to con these resources possible from outside the library's own systems through merged catalogues and aggregation services to which the library contributes. Working with partners like the European Library and Europeana ensure that our content content is set in new international contexts where it can frame research questions. This enables many, many advant advantages to the library. It enables the exposure of the Welsh language, ideas, thinking, history, a recognition of our identity. It also opens up the potential with others to enrich the data. So having our data sitting here in a European context, context as part of a critical mass of data can help education and help our content reach other audience like those, like audiences like those in creative industries, tourism and research. The other thing we can do is link it and um, digitised parliamentary archives are an excellent example of digital content that's currently locked in silos but which would benefit, benefit from an integrated approach. Um, and we were recently funded um, by JISC to develop a project called Linking Parliamentary Records Through Metadata, or LIPARM, um, which defined and implemented a generic XML schema for parliamentary metadata, um, defining controlled vocabularies for key components <coughs> of parliamentary metadata, and produced a platform for a union catalogue of materials based on the records we created. Um, at the core of LipArm was a definition of a parliamentary markup language, um, but this has been adopted um, by contemp for contemporary materials um, by both the Welsh Government and the Northern Ireland Assembly to ensure future interoperability. So there is an output there that is dealing with existing digital content and also future content. The other thing we can do is engage with digital content um, and I think place name work is one of the really exciting developments in digital humanities um, at the moment, uh, using place names to support integrated resource discovery and the use of disparate content. Recent research has shown that a primary means of accessing and analysing digital content is by uncovering and using references to place embedded in the content as a means of unlocking and linking digital content through the development of geo-referenced and historic gazetteers. The National Library of Wales is developing a hub for a group of related projects concerned with recording and understanding the place names of Wales. Uh, one of these initiatives, Wales 1900, um, is going to be launched very soon, so you're having a sneak preview, and this has been developed in collaboration between the National Library of Wales and a number of partners, working with the team behind the very successful Zooniverse crowdsourcing initiatives. Um, the project, Wales 1900, will harness citizen science methods to compile the most detailed list of historic place names in Wales currently available 
by crowdsourcing the 19th century Ordnance Survey six-inch maps. These maps preserve many historic names that are now lost, and a simple, innovative form of collection using citizen science automatically geolocates the names, making them available for a wide range of digital applications. In addition, there's, uh, this mapping project has had a huge potential to tap into local knowledge and memory, so the project has gathered stories about the origin of, origins of place, variant names, as, as well as local knowledge about place, things like My dad said it was never called that. Place name records are an invaluable source for language, history, landscape and community. There's also lots of them, and they're very complex. Compiling an accurate, definitive, geo-referenced gazetteer of Welsh place names is a project that would take many years and has killed off many researchers in the process using traditional data-gathering approaches. Harnessing the power of the crowd is a simple, innovative form of collection that autom automatically gathers the names and geolocates them. This data will provide a huge historical index to the digital collections of Wales, including Welsh newspapers online and Welsh wills online. And finally, what we really need to do with digital content is to sustain it. What do we do with all this digital stuff? We need to sustain it. We need to manage it. We need to keep it. The need to sustain the digital content can't be underestimated. And in response to concerns about the survival of our digital histories, both personal and national, the library is developing a National Conservation and Digital Preservation Centre for Wales. This is the kind of stuff we now have to archive. It looks like a CTI roadshow. It really looks like a CTI roadshow. Um, but it's the material that we are getting now, and we need to conserve it. And this is going to place co traditional conservation practice alongside its digit digital conservation practice, building expertise in creation and management and sustainability of digital content. It will develop a national digital preservation strategy and be a focus of training, research and knowledge exchange in Wales and beyond. And this is going to be the basis of a big bid to the HLF in 2013. But above all, to go back to my what do we do with all this digital stuff, we really need to advocate for it. Digital humanities is possibly trendier than at any time in the last 20 years. I find this extraordinary, but it is. We're all digital humanists now. What digital scholar would claim that they still relied on the, now, uh, the outdated, if it even exists, card catalogue of their university library? All scholars use, at the very least, electronic resources which point to analogue resources. And we can go further without any difficulty. Few humanities scholars would argue against the use of electronic journals and the ease and convenience it affords. We've now got access to a greater body of content from a single, lo single location, your office computer, than the most prestigious library in the world. However, many scholars within the humanities trained within an era of print have succeeded on that basis and are critical of a disruption of these processes. While increasing quantities of the sources they're working with are digitised, they're using them as print replicas and not yet aware of what the digital research infrastructure can do to enhance and change what they're doing. If we're truly to move beyond the project cycle, projectitis, developing projects that are locked in silos with ambiguous or incomplete data, we must understand that focusing on the use of the digital is absolutely key. Far too much time, attention and money 
has been invested on research into the creation and management on data, on theorising data and theorising the digital humanities. We must understand better the use of digital collections and how they sit in that research infrastructure. And the best way to do this is to immerse ourselves into a field that is essentially practice-led by doing digitally-enabled research and creating and being involved in digital humanities projects will create better use cases. And this will demonstrate how we're using, sharing, engaging, linking, enriching, and sustaining our freely accessible digital collections, taking advantage of a research infrastructure that enables true transformations, developing scholarship that's more than just efficient, but enables the development of new research questions. Thank you.